0: we explore stories of human curiosity. And I am here with two great biologists. Um, one who works with me, Dr. Lena Dahlberg, who's been on the previous show, Science of Smells. Do you remember that? I remember that. It was amazing. It
1: was. You did great. certainly something.
0: Yes. Yeah. Two years ago, I had the honor and privilege to interview Dr. Janet Awasa, who is an amazing, what, what would you say? Data visualist, animation visualist, I biology, say molecular animator. Molecular animator. And um, we talked a couple of years ago and it was like terrible audio listeners. And this is my redemption song. Thank you for agreeing to talk to us again.
2: Absolutely. Welcome back to Salt Lake City.
0: Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's whenever I come to Salt Lake, <laughs> I talk to you. I brought my, my good friend, Lena Dahlberg, to come on this show and be my co-host today because I took biology in high school and then never again. I've watched your animations and they're so amazing and they're so vivid, but to be honest, I do not know what is happening. Maybe you can help our listeners and tell them what's your position, uh, like
2: where do you work, what do you do? So I am an assistant professor of biochemistry at the University of Utah in the medical school. And my focus is on creating visualizations of molecular processes that are used for a variety of purposes. The main goal is to use them in research and research communication, but they're also used in education and outreach. And Lena, you've actually used some of these animations.
1: Yes, and I use them when I'm teaching complex biological processes. Often a textbook has a picture that's static and there's a lot of arrows. And so <laughs> in your mind as a student, you're supposed to be able to see how scenario one leads to scenario two and then You're supposed to just figure that out. And so the animations are really nice because it shows how these processes are really happening at a molecular level.
0: In the world of biology and like science communication, trying to
2: uh, communicate a lot of these
0: processes, who else is doing work like you?
2: There aren't a ton of other people within academia. There are a couple people in academia that I can think of who are doing this, at least in the U.S. I I don't really know too much outside of the U.S. But there are a lot of people within different industries. So there are medical illustrators who are employed by, you know, different types of publishing companies, pharma, different places like biotechs. They have their own independent illustration companies, working freelance but within academia, I think it's relatively rare. There, there are a couple of different ways I got into it, but the the kind of what I remember most was when I was probably a second year in grad school. Or at UC San Francisco, which is a a medical school, so there's no undergraduate campus or anything like that. The lab right next door to us was studying a protein called kinesin, which is a microtubule motor protein. It walks along microtubules. I was in the Mullins lab, we studied actin. The lab next door to us studied kinesin and microtubules. Microtubules are considered sort of the highway of the cell. So they stretch across, basically they can stretch from one side of the cell to the other, And they're proteins that walk along them that basically drag things like organelles and vesicles and all of these different things to basically transport them from one side of the cell to the other.
0: Now I'm remembering that you told me this before.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's considered like a molecular super highway. Okay. Uh within the cell. But any anyway, and they grow and shrink so these things are constantly kind of growing and shrinking. So it's very dynamic. So the lab next door, they studied this motor protein and I had seen a lot of different presentations because pretty much everyone in the lab was studying this this protein and so you see a lot of talks and people would show these kind of like stick figure circles and lines with arrows and stuff kind of drawings. And then sometimes people would use their hands to demonstrate how they thought it
1: was walking based on their biochemical experiments. When I sh- when I do it in class, I walk holding a yardstick. <laughs> wow. I like do this jerky walk and walk down. I, like, do you have a balloon at the end of the yardstick? I sometimes have a <gasps> balloon at the end of the yardstick because that's what I'm trying to Show and then I go to the animation. Yeah, and you have, have to walk get, like you, you know, have to like one be really or the other and, right. and sometimes fall off. Well <laughs> i want to, like to like point out saying. to our listeners, because this is just gonna be audio,
0: not like our other video ones, but um Dr. Wasa is like walking like with her she's moving her arms like she is crawling, <laughs> kind of like a really fast sloth. <laughs> so yeah, so I mean there is obvious animation happening. or in your brain, or that the researchers are hoping you're doing in your
2: brain. Yeah, right, by doing this. But, you know, they're using the typical ways that biologists depict these things, which is like stick figure drawings. Anyway, so at some point around my second or third year of grad school, the Vail lab and the Milligan lab, so two different labs, solved the the structure of kinesin. So before then, we didn't actually know what kinesin looked like. Um, And then after that, we had an idea of what, at least what part of it looked like. And so using that structure, Ron Vail decided to hire an animator to create an animation of this walking motion. And he hired an animator named Graham Johnson. And so Graham is actually a medical illustrator by training, a fine artist. He did some fine art before that and had begun doing some work on molecular animation. And so he created this animation at Kinesin, which was then shown in group meeting, which I attended. And a graduate student gave this presentation and showed the animation, which is like pretty much the first time I've seen a molecular animation. For one thing, I never really totally understood. When people were talking about how, how it worked, they were talking about how it's using energy by walking. And I, I think it never totally gel yeah until yeah. i saw the animation and it, it made me think that the animation was really intuitive it was a really natural way of thinking about a dynamic three-dimensional object that's you know doing something that's kind of complicated and it made me think why are we drawing a bunch of circles and squares and arrows when we could try to be showing things in three dimensions and dynamics which is the way we see them in our heads but not the way we're trying to communicate i,
0: I kind of want to bring my next question to lena then because you you come from this like Family who do does biology right and and I wonder has your have your parents who have been in this like field for so long Have they seen these animations and what do what do they think about it?
1: So, so I don't know. I imagine that they have, especially the animation of the kinesin molecule. And also there's a sort of partner one of the myosin molecule. And I think those are very famous at this Mm -hmm. point. And they came out right when I was finishing my my graduate program, I guess, because I remember they came out and I was like, Mm -hmm. that's amazing. And I feel like a lot of Molecular biologists and structural biologists felt like suddenly, like there was this tool where we could, yeah, we could watch the motion of a molecule. um I imagine that my my parents, said, yes, full disclosure, also <laughs> biochemists, and um, I bet that they have seen them. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting because you can be so specialized in biology that if you're not paying attention to one portion of it, you might not actually have you been seen them have, have you been seen them we always talk about pop culture
0: on this podcast and we talked about how when you started learning you know, you were kind of what do I want to say, inspired by this, and you were like, this is something that should be done. And you you had said you went to go learn animation, and it was like right next to Pixar. So other people were doing animation, but not necessarily science animation.
2: Yeah, so I took a course, I've taken a few courses in 3D animation. And the first one I took was while I was still in graduate school, like I probably around my third year. And the course, you know, so as I mentioned, UCSF, it's a medical school, so there aren't any like art classes or anything like that you know so I I was trying to figure out where I could take classes to learn animation and it turns out that San Francisco State University which was kind of like mm-hmm. on the other side of the city had these courses and so and I could take them for free as some kind of like exchange mm-hmm. thing or like SFSU so, MOU so we, or yeah, something. yeah yeah I could take classes at UCSF and we could take classes there so I took this class with with undergraduates who are, I assume were probably like film or arts majors and so you know the projects that we had were like I remember we had to build like a living room with like a sofa and a chair and like a lamp and i had like wallpaper it was very victorian yeah. like ornate and whatever we were doing in class that's what i would do because you know i wasn't gonna be like no i'm gonna only do biology right and like you know nobody else would in the class would understand that so i was, was really students, yeah too. i was just doing everything yeah. as as it was taught and then i would go back to lab afterwards and start doing animation
0: started doing animation. When did that become part of your research? Because I, I think your website is called the Animation Lab. Uh, yes. That's, I mean, you stole that name right away, Animation Lab. I mean, that's, there was nobody else that wanted that. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um. You know, I think we couldn't get that Twitter handle. It's like animationlab.utah.edu.
0: <laughs> but as a grad student, you're doing this. I mean, I personally, I do this podcast. It's hard to get
2: administrators and bosses to really
0: totally value science communication and. I think a lot of your work is, I mean, that's a large portion of it. Like this is for Mm -hmm. science communication so that people can understand what these proteins are doing. So how how did you navigate that?
2: Yeah, so in graduate school, I I guess, you know, like I wasn't, I had an NSF uh, fellowship. Mm -hmm. Uh, which probably, you know, I had, I had that when I started grad school. So it probably helped that I had funding because when I, you know, when I started doing animation, I had to ask for my advisor's permission and I had a small portfolio of animations I had started to work, work on. And, and he said, you know, I think this is really great and you should just take Fridays off to do animation for as long as you want. And so by the, yeah, yeah, he was, he was really great. And, uh, by the end of grad school, I had, I animated pretty much everything my lab mates were working on my was using these animations in his talks. And so it was pretty well known within at least a certain group of people at UCSF that I was doing these things. And, you know, it wasn't, I didn't really need anyone's approval besides my advisor because it was really, you know, kind of my time and kind of, you know, the lab's time that that I was using a little bit of. But I think, you know, it gave me having this sort of protected time allowed me to really think about how animation could be used. Mm -hmm. And so by the end of of grad school, I had this idea of how animation could play a role, not only in kind of like outreach, which there was an obvious kind of place for that, but also within the research um, community.
1: Biology, we think of biology often in a textbook is very static, but of course, biology is never static. And so I think you you could almost cause work, we're alive because we're alive. It <laughs> turns out I keep telling my students that if your cells are still, you're probably dead. right. So so hopefully your cells are moving and all the proteins inside are moving. I think that you know, to just think about my own research, when the cell synthesizes proteins, if they need to be in a certain compartment in the cell, they are often synthesized either at that compartment. Or moved into that compartment later. And like a physical, a physical section section has to be again, no nothing. Yeah. (laughs) So you can think of the endoplasmic reticulum is sort of a starting place for a lot of proteins that have to go different places. But in order to get proteins into the endoplasmic reticulum, there's a lot of movement that has to happen. So there's already an animation from Janet's lab about how you get a protein into the ER. The process that I work on is actually the process of removing a protein out of that. And so that would, to me, I have lots of hypotheses about how different proteins interact with a misfolded protein that needs to be removed and degraded and gotten rid of before it causes a disease state in an organism. We really don't know in a Concrete way, what that looks like in the cell. And there are lots of hypotheses about which protein players are involved, which machines are involved, but how they're actually interacting is essentially a black box. You could basically interrogate any question in biology and there would be an animation waiting to be made. I think, you know,
2: the crux of the problem in biology is really that of scale. So molecules are generally smaller than the wavelength of light the visible light. And so that means we can't ever see them directly using light microscopy. Mm. Um, And so, you know, so there's other ways of figuring out like what a protein looks like by using electrons or x-rays or, you know, things that are smaller, but that requires you to take out the protein, separate it from all the other proteins in the cell and like just freeze it or like you have to put it under some pretty or concentrated under really harsh conditions. And from that, we can figure out the three-dimensional shape, what a protein really looks like. That tells us about it, the shape, but you know we have to do all these other experiments to figure out how is it moving around in a cell that we could use microscopy. But I think of light microscopy as like, if I was standing a mile away with a really huge spotlight, a beam of light, you could see the light and it would be like this big halo of light around me but you couldn't see me you couldn't mm-hmm. make out my face you couldn't make out right. like the shape of you know me waving my hand or anything right. like that, that. or obscene gestures or yeah, something or yeah you would, but no. if, if the light if i moved the light around from a pretty big distance you could probably if i ran around with it you could probably see that light moving right and that's kind of like what we do mm-hmm. in light microscopy when we have like a protein that has a glowing protein on it and then we can kind of see it track it around in different parts of the cell and see it moving around so it can get some idea of movement through that. And then biochemistry, you can do different kind of experiments where you get rid of part of a protein, you see, does it still, can it still attach itself to this other protein? And if it can't, you can say, well, that part of the protein is probably important for that, Mm -hmm. things like that. Um, So we have all these different indirect ways of probing biology, and none of them are going to give us a direct image of what it is that we think is going on, you know? Mm -hmm. So we have all these bits and pieces that can hint at a story. And so the trick of of biology is really taking all this interact evidence and then building that story. Mm -hmm. And, you know, taking, you know, the data you believe and uh, kind of ignoring the data you don't believe, which there's always some, Um, and then you, you try to tell a story that makes sense. And that story is always going to differ a little bit from one person to another, especially if you've been in a field long enough and you have some, your own data that maybe you haven't even published or like just some ideas based on other things. You, your, your stories are always going to be different. I call the animations visual hypotheses because we can't ever see things at the molecular level at which, at the scale at which I'm animating things. And so it's really an idea, someone's idea of how these things work.
0: I'm trying to distinctly separate what you're saying as a visual hypothesis and an actual model. Okay, for our listeners, can you kind of help differentiate between this visual animation and a computational model?
2: So in biology, I guess the word model is not very strictly used. If you say model, it could mean almost anything. anything. Um, it's
0: like there's this thing I made out of
2: clay. Yes. It's a model. There's no strict ter- usage of that. So usually when I try to differentiate a computational what you're probably calling a computational model, I would say it's a simulation. Yes, yes. So like molecular dynamics simulation, where we're trying to like basically simulate the movement of every single atom within yes. a molecule, that I would consider simulation. The animations are not simulations. Exactly. However, you could take simulation data and incorporate them into the animation. The right. problem again with biology is that there's, so there's simulations you can do on different scales. At the kind of the finest grain, you have what's called molecular dynamics. And that is like simulating every single atom in a molecule. You need a supercomputer to have like a nanosecond of like some protein doing very little, you know, over this course of like nanoseconds. Then you go a step higher and you have coarse grain modeling where you take groups of atoms and you simulate those using sort of a coarser kind of simulation where you, you have a sphere an object that kind of takes the place of like multiple atoms or a part of a protein. With that kind of uh, simulation, then you could do larger scale simulations of multiple proteins interacting with each other. The scale of most of my animations is even larger than that. And so that's typically more agent-based modeling where you have a protein that is an agent that can make decisions based on a set of rules. So that's a type of simulation that you could do that I think is at the level at which most people I interact with, most cell biologists, are thinking about proteins. We're not trying to simulate atomic level or even like sub-protein level. You're actually thinking about lots of proteins in a cellular environment. And what are they doing? How are they interacting? So, what my animation is really What's called keyframed animation, where I am making every decision of where this protein is moving around, and I'm, I'm setting a keyframe on how this protein is moving in space and time, and sometimes hundreds of proteins.
1: question about a little bit the culture of science. I, I was looking at your website, and oftentimes if you look at a professor's website, it'll show the people who are in the lab who are doing the work as a professor, and then there's people who are doing postdoctoral fellowships, and then there are graduate students, and sometimes there's a technician. And I was excited to see that you also have people working in your lab who are not doing lab work. It's really only animators. Mm-hmm. And I am curious about the people who apply to your lab. Yeah, so I have an animator and I have
2: a postdoctoral fellow. And so the idea was that, you know, so like like we talked about, there aren't many people in this field. And for me, so I really started training for my career starting in grad school, but I had a postdoctoral fellowship that allowed me to focus. It was actually on the origins of life. So it was kind of with astronomers and geologists and, and biologists doing these sorts of animations. And so you know how to deal with physicists like me? I definitely have talked to some another <laughs> (laughs) But at any rate, so, you know, I had this opportunity as a postdoc, which really helped me launch my career. And I I know that there is that there's an interest within the scientific community to have more people who are doing things like me. But there really are not many opportunities to be trained to do that. And, you know, a lot of people it's it's a kind of a time consuming thing, learning 3D animation. And so it's not something That, you know, like I think you could completely do in your spare time and then like have a career, you know, like I think that would be very difficult. Mm -hmm. You really need some stage at which you're training full time to do that. And so I wanted to uh, basically have a postdoc who is interested in, in having a career like mine. What's your funding source for that? I should preface this by saying that this is very new. So I only uh, started my group last fall, and my people really moved to Utah in January. So it hasn't been a long time. And so I've been sort of ramping up projects and grants since then. But we have two major ways that we're funding our group. One is through grants. A majority of those are collaborative and they really are a range, a really wide range of things. And so, like, I have two NASA grants. I have two, I think, collaboratory NSF grants. I have an NIH, two NIH grants. So there's a range. And so like the NIH grants, there's one on cryo-electron microscopy and how to create, basically train people to go from doing something else to learning how to do cryo M, which is really a growing field. And then there was another one on HIV, which is about basically animating the science of the kind of uh, the biology of HIV. Yeah, I just watched that video. So that's a continuing project and we're adding more to it. The NSF brands say there's different kind of molecular machines that we're working on we're working on plant cytokinesis nasa grants are mostly on the origins of life so anyway so we take on a lot of different projects with lots of different people and we are doing a lot of the science communication visualization aspects of those projects so it's not great for if someone really needs an animation in three months that's not a great way of doing it however it's a great way for us to really get involved in a so it's It's definitely the one, the way that I think it makes it feasible for most with most biologists. The other mechanism is through contracts. So basically if people already have funding through some other means, Mm -hmm. they can get in touch with us and say, you know, we would really like to have an animation to go along with our publication. That's Coming out hopefully, preferably within like two to three months, minimally. Or like we could work with publishing companies. So we have a contract with a publishing company to create illustrations, or biotechs, or pharma.
1: Well, I actually, I mean, I just kind of wanted to follow up on this idea of molecular models. As somebody who's trying to teach biology to a broad group of students, I think that one of the things that I talk a lot about is how to interrogate a model. So when I have students learning how to read a textbook, I'm I'm often telling them that the figures that they're seeing in a textbook are important because they're printed in color ink, which is more expensive than black and white ink. And they're also spaces to ask questions. So once you understand what the picture is showing you, then you can start asking the why questions. So why is that red blob next to the green blob? Or how do you think that the red blob could be interacting with a yellow blob and a green blob at the same time? I like the idea of these the three-dimensional and four-dimensional models where you see things changing over time because it allows even more of those moments for students to just come in and say like and what's the next question and I think that's also one of the really great things for researchers who are who are always looking for the next question is to say if this is if this model is true then my data should look like this or if it's not true my data should look different and so this idea of modeling is really is really important. I want
0: to close out our interview like I always do, talking about pop culture. And I remember you mentioning about you being inspired by the Lord of the Rings movies. Can mm-hmm. you like talk about that inspiration? And then I would also like to ask have you been asked to use your skills? still for science, but more in a media aspect, other than just being contract?
2: Yeah, the Lord of the Rings. So I was talking about agent based modeling simulations before. And um, so this is something that I'm actively looking into, whether we can create software that would allow researchers to create agent based simulations of molecular networks or systems. And so that that would involve like figuring out what the structure of a protein is and then giving it a set of rules so it can, based on what's around it, it can kind of change its shape or whatever. One of the reasons that I thought this would be possible to do was that I was attending these conferences. There's this one called SIGGRAPH. Um, which is about graphics and uh, visualization within kind of more of a Hollywood kind of context. And so, you know, at, at the conferences I go to, there's like booths by like people who make microscopes and like stuff like But at this place, the booths were like Pixar yeah. and it was like, you know, all the big animation studios. Like my dream.
1: Yeah, it was was like dream work. It was
2: exactly, it was fun. Yeah, And you know, so there were people who were doing like motion capture and all this kind of stuff, like demoing it, the software. And I walked by a booth that had scenes from Lord of the Rings. And what they were demoing was this agent-based simulation software where you could basically simulate crowds using agent-based simulations where you could create an agent, in this case, like an elf or an orc or like a human or whatever. And you could have them in different poses. And they'd be um, these sort of autonomous agents where if something moves within a certain distance that was defined by you, like say five foot radius or something. If something walks within this radius, the agent would react. And mm-hmm. you could make the rules of like, if it's an elf, they wouldn't do anything. But if it's an orc, they're gonna raise their shield or they're at 50% chance of raising their shield, 50% chance of raising their sword. It's like Sims on steroids. Yeah. Like, oh my God, I love it. But it, so they had this and it, it was built with the kind of a, a graphics, you know? So you could see the agent kind of undergoing, going between these different steps, making these decisions. And I, you know, like watching the simulation run, so then you can populate your scene with like a hundred of these agents and they look pretty good. They're making these decisions. They're kind of interacting with each other in this way that looks pretty realistic. And my, my first reaction to seeing this is like, it's like proteins. <laughs> you know, like proteins are making decisions on what's, you know, big kind of going on around them and they, they have different kind of forms. You know, they have these different states that's determined by kind of what's within their vicinity. So, so yeah, so I think, there are things like that that I, I think after I started like looking into all of these different kind of softwares and learning about 3D animation, I joke around that my I became kind of insufferable to watch movies with. Yeah, that's what i was So like, we my husband, kind of end with that. Yeah, we, uh, <laughs> So my husband and I, we were like watching Ratatouille in the theater. This was obviously it's a long time ago, but I love Ratatouille. This was the age at which I was the time at which I was really going to a lot of these meetings. And so we're watching Ratatouille, and uh, there's a scene where there's like a plate of cheese, and it's like semi-translucent. The light is kind of coming through the through it. It's like Swiss cheese that has holes in it, and it looks really realistic. And I was like thinking about how hard it must be to get the light to interact with the cheese in a way that looks so realistic. And I'm like, ah! Oh, as my husband's name is Adam, I was like, Adam, look at that cheese. It looks so good. Yeah. Look at how re- look at how the light is. And he's like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <And it's> like, <laughs> I'm trying to watch the movie and then at SIGGRAPH I saw a presentation by people at Pixar who were talking about the cheese and how hard it was and how you know they really had to think of the physics of how the light was interacting you knew me. it yeah and I was like I knew it you know just <laughs> exactly. I was like looking at that plate of cheese and I was like that looks like a lot of work.
0: Thank you again for like taking time out of your day. It's late in the day in Utah for our listeners and you came all the way to come see me. So thank you so much for talking to us again. My pleasure. And thank you too, Lena. Thanks for inviting me. We want to thank Dr. Janet Awassa for taking the time to talk to us and also Dr. Lena Dahlberg for being a wonderful guest host on this episode. Spark Science is sponsored by WWU and created in partnership with KMRE. Spark Science is recorded on location and in Bellingham, Washington, at Western Washington University. The producers are Suzanne Blaise, Regina Barber-DeGraff, and Robert Clark. Student editors are Julia Thorpe, Andrew Norton, and Zarek Coakley. Additional editing is done by WWU Video Services. If there's a science idea you're curious about, post a message on our Facebook page or tweet us at SparkScienceNow. Thanks for joining us, and if you want to listen to past episodes, visit SparkScienceNow.com.